You're listening to Hayes Radio Network, Cannabis Lifestyle Radio. The business of cannabis is brought to you by Cash Tech Currency Products, North America's leading cash management provider for cannabis retailers. Cash recyclers, smart safes, software and services, Cash Tech has everything the cannabis retailer needs to track, manage, and secure the cash earned in the dispensary. Don't take chances with your cash. Call Cash Tech and solve the problem. Visit www.cashtechcurrency.com to learn more. Welcome to the business of cannabis. I'm Dave Sky, and uh, for maybe some of my regular listeners uh, to the show, I, I think uh, you've noticed I've gotten into the habit of announcing the mission of the show at the beginning of each broadcast, and I'm doing it again because there's a very specific reason uh, we do this show, and we make a very specific promise uh, to our listeners to bring you the most relevant, groundbreaking, innovative business stories from the cannabis front lines, the latest in cannabis brands services, innovations in retail, software, distribution, marketing, to put it bluntly, a hard look at the hard realities of making money in the cannabis industry. So that is a perfect segue for our first guest. Uh, Sometimes I have to work that segue a bit, but this time it's easy. Uh, We'll be speaking to Omar Muellen, a journalist, uh, among other things, a filmmaker uh, uh, and uh, writer. Um, And he has written a rather biting analysis of the um, Canadian cannabis industry, basically discussing how billions of dollars was raised, uh, billions of dollars of stock value appeared, and now has disappeared. This is in around four four or five short years. Uh, Federal legalization is seen by some in the United States as a panacea for all the challenges in the cannabis space. Um, It was not a panacea in Canada. And their experience with cannabis should be a wake-up call for uh, legislators uh, south of the Canadian border. Uh, So my segue from Omar's story is perhaps not as elegant. Uh, It does relate to reality, uh, however, uh, maybe not harsh, but certainly reality. And so welcome, we'll be welcoming Thomas Winstanley to the business of cannabis. He's VP of Marketing for Theory Wellness, which is a chain of dispensaries in Maine and Massachusetts. They have uh, both on the rec and medicinal side. They're also growers. And they have brands in almost every product category. It's quite a a wide range of cannabis products uh, for the size of their company. I will ask how they market the brands, who their target customers are, and what product categories they see growing in the near and long term. Uh, This is definitely uh, feed on the street marketing information you're getting. Uh, So uh, definitely definitely a hard look at some hard realities. Um, So for everyone listening out there, and there are over 115,000 of you a week now and growing. I promise you that you'll learn something on this show. First, what happened in Canada where everything was supposed to be so great? Second, just how do you market your cannabis products? <laughs> All that, and stay tuned after we talk to Omar Thomas and I'll reflect on everything we've heard. And you can test me uh, to see if I've uh, learned something as well. We'll be back soon with more of the business of cannabis. <music> And welcome to the business of cannabis. Um, our next guest, uh, our Omar Muellen, clearly does too much. He describes himself as a writer, journalist, editor, filmmaker, commentator, educator, small business owner. He's done work for The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, CBC TV, The Guardian. He's appeared on Al Jazeera, WNYC, other networks. His latest book is called Praying to the West, How Muslims Shaped the Americas, named one of Global Mail's 100 Best Books for 2021, nominated for two Alberta Literary Book Awards in memoir and nonfiction category. He's made two documentaries, Digging in the Dirt and The Last Baron, but that is not why he's here. Uh, I'm mentioning it because it's worth mentioning, Uh, but he's on the business of cannabis because Omar recently published uh, an insightful article in the Canadian Business Magazine the spring 22 edition. I encourage you to check it out. 
called The Cannabis Crash, which is a very unique look at the Canadian cannabis industry. It's not all gloom and doom, despite the title, but neither is it all a sugar and spice. And cannabis, of course, can be irrationally exuberant about itself sometimes. And Omar, as a journalist, maybe part, pokes a bit of a pin in that cannabis balloon. Now let's talk about it. Omar, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. So um, before we dive right into that, what piqued your interest, as a journalist, what piqued your interest in the uh, cannabis industry in the first place? Oh, uh, I mean, I hate to admit it, but I think it was probably meme stocks got me looking at, (laughs) for the first time, got me actually looking at the... um, I guess the financial part of the cannabis sector, um, you know, like like many Canadians, I'm just sort of a, a casual consumer here and there. Um, I wasn't exactly, you know, counting the hours down to legalization day, but eventually made my way to a store. And so, you know, and I guess maybe the 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 biggest mystery to me was how there were so many um, cannabis shops uh, up and running in Alberta, uh, Canada, where I live, which has the most shops in, uh, you know, per capita in the country. But I never right. really paid that much attention to the, um, you know, to the stock market, to the to pot stocks um, right. until meme stocks. And then I, I started looking at some of the biggest Canadian cannabis companies that I'd heard of, like Aurora or Canopy Growth or Tweed. And looking at their five-year, um, you know, looking at their five-year like stock cycle and seeing these massive dips, basically from you know shortly after pot went legal, and I just wondered how did that happen? I mean, if anything, these companies should have uh, grew in value after legalization day. Um, and so I think that that sort of set me on this journey to figure out well, how did that happen? Um, how did this industry, the sector that had so much promise, really like fumble the ball. Um, And what lessons are there to learn from this for other countries like the US or uh, in Mexico? Um, And, and, you know, I think gradually, probably the rest of the world. Right. Well, you must be a writer or journalist, because that's a perfect lead in to (laughs) let's talk about that story. Uh, Give us a brief sort of summary then of, of what the cannabis crash is about. Right. So um, in and around 2016, it started to look uh, pretty clear that Canada was going to um, make its way toward federal legalization of recreational cannabis. It had effectively been decriminalized for a few years, but after Justin Trudeau's liberal government came in in 2015, um, late 2015, one of their promises was to uh, legalize recreational use of cannabis. So after that became obvious, you started to see a lot of uh, medical cannabis companies starting to ramp up uh, for recreational. And then a lot of other um, prospective companies doing the maximum that they can without any you know, license to produce or facilities up and running yet uh, to try to get ready for what was the inevitable. And sure enough, 2017 comes along and the Cannabis Act is introduced. And basically we're told uh, it's gonna be about a year to a year and a half uh, toward federal legalization. Mm -hmm. And all these companies that uh, had prepared for this moment, many of them by then had already raised hundreds of millions of dollars. But with the Cannabis Act being introduced into the parliament, that's when they were able to, um, I think, act on their plans, not necessarily to become licensed producers, but their plans to raise money. And we're talking big money, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. Um, before, Like a year before cannabis even became legalized, you had a handful of companies that had billion dollar valuations. Remember, they these are they did not even have a proof of concept yet, right? At oh, best right. that's they, interesting. Yeah. At best they had, you know, broken ground on some greenhouses. Um but they didn't have license uh, licenses to produce yet. Um and so it it makes you wonder, well was cannabis really a commodity here 
or was it just an equity? Because it seemed like people were trading on it like it was equity. Um, mm. And so because there was, they were so flush with capital, stock capital or cash, um, they went really, really big in order to fulfill the uh you know, the, the expectations of their investors, they had to go massive and they built uh, to a point that is just beyond uh, reason and they overproduced cannabis way more. I mean, three times, maybe even four times more than the market actually could possibly consume. Um, and it did not take long for the market to catch up to them. And that's when you started to see the share prices of these companies just collapse and go into free fall and right. facilities closing and, you know, half built facilities. Right now, um, if you go to Hyde Advisory, which is this business brokerage for uh, cannabis, Canadian cannabis companies, you'll see over 30 businesses just up for sale. Um, some of them being sold for like pennies on the dollar, just turning uh, operations. Growers mostly, uh, all uh, dispensaries, all of the above. All, all of the above. Okay, yeah. so just across the spectrum, A across the whole yeah sector. Right. Yeah. You know, it's kind of. I'm listening to this. It sounds a bit like Mel Brooks, the producers. It's like you sold the same thing, like, but everyone was selling that huge dream, and yeah. maybe if one company had done it, it would have been fine. But you can't have that many people all trying to be the PepsiCo of cannabis. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, the, the, the PepsiCo of cannabis, there was one company in particular that was trying to be that, and that's Aurora Cannabis. Um, now, Aurora is from the same city that I live in, Edmonton. So I was able to access a good number of their former employees. Oh, um, nice. And, and what, a lot did of, they what did they have to say, Omar? <laughs> some went on the record, some did not. Um, of course. And uh, many were willing to speak to me on, uh, you know, on, uh, I guess, as, as confidential um, sources. Um, it's hard to so say what where, did they where say to start. Without, yeah, what did they say without naming names? What was yeah. your impression of their experience of this sort of, if, if I can ironically, sort of, Alberta being an oil province is a boom. That's place. right. Environment. Yes. So it but, was but that's true. And but Alberta is also a very entrepreneurial province. And it has, uh, you know, and it's very fertile, like agriculturally speaking, it's very fertile as well. So it made sense, I guess, for Alberta to go kind of uh, full hog on cannabis, which it did. Um, it's their nature. Sure. <laughs> it is. It is sort of their nature. Right. And it, it also came at a time when the oil, uh, when the oil market, when the energy market had crashed um, in 2014, 2015. So I think a lot of Albertans who had been, uh, well, all Albertans had been affected by that. But I think a lot of Albertans who wanted to get out of the instability of energy were looking for a new sector that also promised, um, you know, a lot of money. Sure. Um, and I'm sure they're going right back into it now. <laughs> <laughs> I think many of them are, in fact. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, coming back to Aurora, Aurora, right. um, you know, Aurora had big dreams, big ambitions. But um, from the outset, it wasn't quite the premier company that sort of belonged to Canopy and Tweed. And it wasn't really, I think, reaching the the aspirations that it had. But then Canopy and Tweed and some of the others, their valuations became quite bloated. And so stock promoters were looking for a new darling in the Canadian you know, recreational space. And it just so happened that Aurora had just announced Aurora Sky, which at 75,000 square meters, state of the art, was going to be the world's largest uh, cannabis facility. And that caught people's attention. And in the speculative markets, it is all about the story that you sell. And that, yes, yeah. that dream captured a lot of attention. And that's sort of how they stole the investor spotlight. And it was not long before Aurora had a $4 billion market cap. And with that $4 billion, they could pretty much do anything. They could uh, go on an aggressive buying spree, which they did. And they bought things that are 
barely even adjacent to cannabis. They were they bought a company that was a greenhouse designer. They bought uh, companies that did robotics in this space, um, in agriculture. Sometimes they were buying just to take the technology away from their competitors. Um, sometimes they, were, they would take a stake out in a company that had some marginal success with research, you know, basically gambling on it. And they're doing this at the same time that they are also building Aurora Sky plus several other new greenhouses, some even bigger than that one that they announced. They even announced a expansion in Denmark as well. Now, I remind you, okay, we, have not gone le- we have not gone legal. We do not know what the parameters of this okay. sector are going to be. We wow, don't even okay. know if cannabis will be allowed to be um, you know, exported between provinces uh, in the end, it could be, but will it be able to be exported outside of the country? Good point. What's the population of uh, of uh, Alberta? Just to jump in here, give four million. Vote. Four million, give or take. So you're talking about a pretty small. Exactly. If it's not exportable. What are you going to do? Right. So Even you Canada is not that big. But, like, well, that's the thing. Million, let alone, you know, the, and you can't ex- you can export it from Canada, and yet they're they're buying up companies in Europe and building in Europe, and so. Anyway, I I mean, essentially, they, you know, they, I think one of the most puzzling ones is instead of um, just building a new chain of dispensaries, they bought a liquor store with the plan to convert this liquor chain to dispensaries. Um, And I don't know what happened with that, to be honest, because I I don't really, I've only seen one Aurora dispensary in my life at West Edmonton Mall, of all places. Um, (laughs) So, um, the the point being that Aurora went really really big, and it was indicative of this um, this blind enthusiasm that Canada was going to be the world leader, that we were going to show the world that you can legalize and sell pot, and that this was going to be a multi billion dollar industry within our country almost immediately, and very little very little consideration was given toward um, things like well. How viable is it when uh, producers are being taxed a dollar, um, a dollar per, uh, you know, per gram, basically? Um, how viable is it going to be hmm. when uh, when you can't export, you know, cannabis from your own country? Um, how viable can it be when the population is only thirty million people? And and how much uh, and how much cannabis are people going to consume? Like- That's right. I think people like the idea of Canada being, you know, a big pot, you know, uh, th- that we are a nation of potheads, but I don't think it really bears out. We're actually quite conservative when it comes to um, our usage, um, at least, you know, compared to some other countries. What's interesting is, you know, we're going on four years now um, since cannabis has been legalized, and the number of uh, consumers has barely changed. Those who smoke might smoke a little bit more, um, right. but it is. Uh, but if you didn't, if I shouldn't say smoke used, but if you used before, uh, sorry, if you didn't use before, then rarely ha- have people taken it up because of rec- recreational uh, legal legal recreation. But the big, big, big one that was not that was really overlooked was the illicit markets. There was this assumption that the black and gray markets were going to be converted. Which is crumble, right? And it is yeah. just, it's not happened. A lot of people still get it, get their uh, right. their cannabis from those markets. It's still cheaper. The quality is better, generally speaking. Um, the quality of the, of the legal stuff was actually quite bad at launch. It's improved dramatically. It's quite comparable sure. now. Okay. Okay. Um, but it was a really bad start for these companies and it left a bad taste in people's mouths. Um, you know, the, the, the people, the industry people I've spoken to estimate that it's about 50% of the market is still black market, illicit market. If you talk to Statistics Canada, they say it's 35%, but that's based on uh, Canadians reporting right. you know, the source of their of their of their cannabis, which I don't think is right. I am dealing, yes, I am selling illegal cannabis. Yeah. Make sure you include me in your study. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, let me just. Uh, I'm talking to Omar Muellen uh, of uh, from Alberta, writer, um, journalist, 
filmmaker getting uh, some insights into uh, not only Canada's experience, but what does le federal legalization mean in the US potentially? Um, and lessons learned and not learned. You know, we had someone on the show recently, um, Glasshouse Brands, uh, they have launched a 5 million square foot um, greenhouse, 5 million square feet in California. Um, and you talk about 75,000 square feet, maybe being square meters. Yeah. Square I don't, meters. I don't know. Okay, I don't so, know the meter to feet. So call it 200,000, 300,000 square feet. Yeah. versus 5 million, 400, whatever it is. Um, my, you know, I never, yeah. That's why we uh, talk. We don't do math. Um, <laughs> but let me ask you, uh, lessons. Are there lessons learned yet that have you have seen once you've done all your research and all the people you yeah. talked to, were there lessons learned? And then are there lessons on that remain unlearned. Yeah, I mean, I think the the first one is to lower the temperature on the hype, right? Remember, remember mm. that this is um, it's not a nascent industry. It's it's actually a mature industry, but so it's actually you know instead of thinking it as the birth of a new industry, it's actually a transition, right, from uh, illicit to legal, and that That's takes time. That take too many people, I think, saw it as um, as like the birth of a new industry overnight, like the create like the discovery of of a new mineral or rare earth, mm. you know, mm -hmm. rare earth metals or something like that. And even better, it's drugs. So they're and even better, you know, it's drugs. It's like, it's like it's, you, of course you make money. Who, who it's not money? that. <laughs> it's not that at all. Point. Right. That's interesting. This isn't this isn't the advent of, you know, the Internet. Um, this is something else. This is sort of a, yeah. So, um, I think, so with that, I think kind of, you gotta sort of, um, tamper your expectations a little bit and not try to be the biggest and meanest, um, companies and, and sector in general. I think, I think there's a lot of lessons also to be paid attention to, um, you know, the size of these greenhouses, it's very difficult to produce quality cannabis at that scale. Um, and so, you know, even some of the best growers, they really struggle in these 200,000 square foot facilities, right? Right. Um, because what they're used to before is, is you know, get, being able to give a lot of tender love and care to the plant, which, you know, you know, uh, produces a, a quality yield. Um, and and I think another one would be the the tax uh, framework in Canada. It is um, it is not a, it, the the excise tax is not according to the price of the wholesale product. It's according to the um, to the weight of it. So that has <laughs> that kind of forces a race to the bottom in terms of quality, um, and it makes and it very a, difficult. Yeah for the small craft growers to compete in that. It, it's a chronic problem in the US as well when when the tax is unrelated to the price. Mm -hmm. It's all very well when the price is high, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. When the price is uh, a third or a quarter, it's it's problematic. That's correct. Yeah, and we've we've seen price compression of about uh, 50% already in just four, four and a half years here in Canada. Um, so, you know, it, it went from about eight to $10 per gram to under $5 per gram on wow. average. So the consumers are happy. That's for sure. Right. And maybe that's good. And maybe that's where it'll and Maybe that's good. And maybe that's where it needs to be. And, and the industry needs to deal with it. We only have like a minute left. Sure. If you could write the follow-up article, to the cannabis crash, what do you think in a couple of years they come? What do you think that would be? What do you think the next article is? Oh, the next article is going to be how um, all the Bay Street and Wall Street bigwigs who um, uh, <laughs> who co-opted cannabis um, and led it to its demise have now gotten into psychedelics and are doing the same <laughs> they're, thing they're again. in that space. <laughs> are at it again. That's going to be the follow up. <laughs> That wouldn't be the first time. Yeah, they're uh, in their search for making money. They're not going to quit uh, yeah. one more time. But maybe some lessons learned. Um, we have seen that in some ways in, in the U.S. as new states open, um, a more methodical, thoughtful approach. But uh, you're, you've, it's so interesting uh, because it's so rare to read that um, perspective, a real, what I would call reality. 
reality. Okay, let's not talk about the hype of cannabis. Let's just talk it as a business. And quite often the metrics don't don't work. Um, I, it was, I, I congratulate you on, on uh, taking the time and oh, thank you. Uh, putting together such a thoughtful piece. I encourage you to go to Omar's website. I'm going to spell it out, the name, Omar, and then M-O-U-A-L-L-E-N, Omar, M-O-U-A-L-L-E-N.com, all one word. And you can see the article there and you can read it, which is very nice of you uh, to put it there. But you also uh, read up all about uh, his book, uh, Praying to the West, How Muslims Shaped the Americas. Uh, and also get some information on his two uh, great documentaries, Digging in the Dirt, and uh, the newest one, which is called The Last Baron. Um, Omar, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It, Thank you. It was very interesting. It's and, been fun. Um, we will be back with more of The Business. The Business of Cannabis is brought to you by Cash Tech Currency Products, North America's leading cash management provider for cannabis retailers. Cash recyclers, smart safes, software and services, Cash Tech has everything the cannabis retailer needs to track, manage, and secure the cash earned in the dispensary. Don't take chances with your cash. Call Cash Tech and solve the problem. Visit www.cashtechcurrency.com to learn more. And welcome back to the business of cannabis. Um, we are going to talk about marketing uh, with someone who spent their career uh, doing just that. Thomas Win Stanley is VP of Marketing at Theory Wellness, uh, which is a vertically integrated cannabis uh, MSO with operations in Massachusetts. They've got two rec, three medicinal dispensaries there, three rec dispensaries in Maine, plus a large production facility in Waterville, Maine. Um, some 70 products in their portfolio. So it's quite uh, an expansive offering. I would be remiss uh, if I didn't mention that Theory Wellness offers 20% discounts for medicinal products for qualifying people. So that's super cool. Um, Thomas did spend some years uh, outside of campus honing his skills. And I would be even more remiss and not mention he was captain of the dodgeball team when working at Extraverdic, which was a marketing and communications firm. So don't play dodgeball with Thomas, trust me. Um, but eventually he came to his senses and plunged into the cannabis space with Theory Wellness in 2018. Uh, first as director, now he's VP, so he must be doing something right. So let's find out what. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. And uh, yeah, thanks for dusting off the oldie of the dodgeball career. Yes, right. Uh, yes. In that league, we actually went from last place to first place with me as the captain. So oh, look little, at that. Listen to you. And <laughs> <laughs> probably had a good job, that trophy, uh, at home that he has on the shelf <laughs> when you walk in. And so you can see it. Uh, let's, um, like I was alluding to, so, so such an expansive portfolio of products. I started right. listening and preparing for the, for the interview, and then I thought this is becoming out of control. Why don't I ask Thomas, explain sort of your position in the market from a product perspective. Um, yeah, so theory began in you know 2015 when we first went out and started to secure licenses. In 2016 is when we really started out in the medical world of Massachusetts. And from early on with theory's development and kind of path into the market, as a medical company, we really wanted to make sure we were creating products to reach all different subsets of our, our medical patients at the time. And ultimately, Theory's goal has really been to define the future of cannabis that we really want to see both as consumers, but also as, um, you know, advocates for the industry as a whole. And so what being part of a vertically integrated network that we control the supply chain, we control the development, the packaging, we wanted to make sure we created both really, really memorable, effective products, but also that we wanted to create products that stretched across many different potential subsets of our consumers. And so we have everything from edibles to tinctures, vaporizers, flour, um, topicals. And really that portfolio has not only continued to expand, but also continued to evolve based on both market needs, market requests, but also based on the technology that has come forward um, as this space, as I'm very sure you're very well aware, has been innovating nonstop since sure. you know our our inception here. So of that line, is there a best-selling line that tends to dominate? Is it, or are there some lines that are new that are becoming important? Are drinks becoming bigger yeah. or 
or is flour still, you know, 80, what, 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 how would you right. break it down that way? Yeah. So flour remains king and that's, that, and that's pretty consistent with both the main market and the Massachusetts market across both med and rec. Um, and, you know, flour is really where the heart of our business is. All of our products is a vertically integrated company that's seed to sale. Flour is the heart of our business. We take a lot of care in producing quality flour to make sure that they can meet us where we need for our needs for all these different variable product markets. Sure. And, you know, I think the space has continued to grow. Flour really does continue to own a lot, but we are starting to see some incremental shifts around growth in edibles, growth in extracts to categories that have a lot of have a lot of kind of functional enhancements in the technology you can use to produce. I mean, and I think overall to your bigger question, the big product category that we're seeing a larger gra- uh, kind of growth in are beverages. So theory, we we actually launched in February of 2020, a, uh, a sub brand called High Five, which is a cannabis infused seltzer with uh, rapid onset with nano emulsified cannabis with, uh, you know, carbonated water and then artificial non, or sorry, uh, all natural flavoring. And in the first nine months of having that product in the market for Massachusetts, we did close to a million cans, which amazing. Really, is it a line of flavors or is it a flavor? Yep. Like, oh, okay. Nope. Yep. Yeah. So we have six separate. We have six different flavors. Plus, we do seasonals, um, and that really has be, been a very large kind of gateway product to the can of consumers, uh, the or the can of curious consumers who were sure. maybe not really interested in taking an edible or not right, buying or smoking. a pan or all that stuff or smoking. Precisely. Yeah. 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 And the, the nano emulsification technology actually helps you control your dosing a little bit better. And so, you know, there are five milligrams. And so you can have one, you feel the effects literally in five minutes or so. They also dissipate much quicker. And so you have a much more controllable experience when you're consuming this. And it also is not like you're holding a vape pen or something where you need to be discreet right. with it. You can put it in a koozie and nobody would know otherwise that you right. were drinking a hard seltzer. Right. And that's really given a lift in the category, I would say, for edibles, which oh, I think is going to continue to grow. If you step back a bit and then thought, like, what is, first of all, what is theory in your mind, theory wellness's place in the market now? Mm-hmm. And would it be fair to say, what would you like it to be? Or is wow, it more a, the same? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think our place in the market today is we're we're different from, as an MSO, we're independently owned and operated. And so that's almost an oxymoron when you think about what an, an MSO is today. A lot right. of the time when you think about MSOs, you're thinking about very large holding companies, publicly traded stocks, et cetera, et cetera. Where we're really kind of in this, this unique area is because we're independent, we have a relatively flat organization that makes us very nimble. We can scale to the needs of the marketplace. We can turn on a dime. We can create a product, get it into market on a very expedited and judicious timeline. And so part of what I think has made theory a little bit different, but also had created our space in the market was that we've been one of those companies where we're a lot more, we have a startup mentality that has never gone away. Where we kind of hope to be in the market is it's almost hard to answer that, David, because the market is changing so fast. It's very hard to have a unique identity when, you know, we're looking at scaling into, you know, Ohio, into New Jersey, into multiple states. Yeah, We're trying to understand actually a little bit more of what does theory look like and what does it represent when we go from a small batch craft cannabis company that's independent to something that is now, you know, multi-state, is in multiple states with different licensing tiers where does theory become in that time? And I think we're, we're trying to understand that today. So it's a little bit of a non-answer to your question, but I think it's an honest one. Well, I'm going to follow up to give you a, a chance to even clarify. Would, would you say right now your thinking is we want to be seen as a, Nash, a multi-state brand? Or are you leaning towards, like some people on the show, no, every state we go into is going to be its own animal. It's going to be its own brand on some level. Right. Um, and we, because we need to understand our local, each market's quite different. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair, uh, an easier question or a harder question to answer? <laughs> it's almost, it's almost harder. Um, okay, to some extent. there we go. I'll follow yeah. up with an even harder one. So try that one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think really what we're, we, we have some core fundamentals that we look at. We want to okay. be innovative. We want to feel premium and we want to feel accessible. And to be able to do all of those three things, depending on the marketplace, Obviously, there's some subjectivity that is going to be at play in types of licenses, the way that we build operations in new states, which have, which have different requirements. But ultimately, 
you know, a marketer, my goal would be is that if you walked into a theory wellness in Maine and you walked into one in New Jersey and you walked into one in Massachusetts, you felt like you were walking into the same style of retail, you have the same consistent experience and all of it is positive and all of it is surrounded by quality and very conscious people who are working in the industry to provide a really high quality existence. And it reflects the values you articulated there. Very much so. Whether it's nuanced on some level locally. That's cool. Okay. No, I know it's not easy to do, but yeah. at, least, at least you know what you need to do. <laughs> well, yeah, the, you know, the next 16 months or 18 yeah, the, months yeah, are going to be this, really exciting. <laughs> yeah. We are talking to Thomas Winstanley, uh, the VP of Marketing of uh, Theory Wellness, um, a vertically integrated MSO at, in Massachusetts and Maine, and soon to expand to other states potentially. Are you able to tell us maybe where you are thinking of going, or is that a top secret? Um, I can give you, you have you to know, kill me if you told me. <laughs> no, and honestly, I think a lot of this is, you know, right now I think our the East Coast is opening up, and there's no question about how that's how these new states like New York, New Jersey are now coming into yeah. the fold, Connecticut, Vermont. Right now, we are really weighing our priorities of where do we have the best opportunity to scale that aesthetic and that kind of approach to the brand. Um, and right now, New Jersey is very much top of mind, we're going to be working towards a uh, medical license there. Um, Ohio is also another state where we're working towards a, a medical license as well. Oh, okay. And I think within, you know, within reason, you know, we're still a really small, nimble team, as I said earlier, we want to consciously scale in a way that, you know, we don't sacrifice values along the way, which is is relatively easy to do, I think, when you can, you know, to create short wins to grow really fast. But I think we want to be very conscious about the scaling we do, and we want to scale in the places that we're strongest in. Let um, me let me let me ask you to put your marketing hat on now. Sure. Um, first, when you're, how important in your mind to your consumers, the consumers, not necessarily dispensaries yet. We'll talk about them in a sec. Is the fact that you are vertically integrated? Do they? focus on that? Are there certain types of users who focus, of, of, of consumers who focus on that? And do you actively market that part of your business? It's interesting. I don't think I've been asked that before. I think vertical integration is a marketer's term today in the industry. I think folks who, who understand the industry or maybe professionals aren't thinking about vertical integration in terms of their buying trends and buying, you know, their buying habits. I'm not sure that's a Okay. That becomes a lever in decision making. However, where we've been really conscious and disciplined is that the product quality across category meets a certain standard. So when we go and we go develop a you know a new flavor of a drink or we're developing a new type of edible, we're very much thinking about does it align with the overall portfolio and does it meet a quality standard, everything from a packaging piece to the dosing to the effects. And so I think vertical integration is is something that over time we'll probably see less understanding of, especially with the amount of licensing deals and um, okay. a lot of the action in the market now is changing what that means and how consumers will view it. Yeah, I'm super interested. Like, I mean, alcohol, like uh, vertical integration is very important, right? Uh, in certain brands and other brands, it isn't. Um, not so, not in beer, but in in wine and 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 um, spirits. Uh, now, so let's get, I want to get on that uh, question of quality. Sure. I'm fascinated by how as a marketer, do you express that in a compelling way when I've never come across a, a, a cannabis company that says we produce garbage? <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> you know, like. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's funny you say that. I think when we, when we think about quality, so. It, a lot of it starts at the R&D process and a lot of okay. it starts actually with our consumers. So when we, when we say, okay, well, we are looking at a new edible per se, we'll actually survey our customers who are buying edibles and say, is there something that you would like to see from theory that you're not seeing in the edibles category today? And we'll ask of everything from types of edibles to flavor profiles to packaging, and we'll get feedback, honest feedback. I think one thing that you know, when you ask a consumer what they think about something, they will tell you and they will be honest whether you want to hear it or not. Right. Yeah. So we use that as a starting point, but then we also use qualifying research from you know different trends that we see in the marketplaces, in more mature markets. 
And then we take it into, you know, our really our R&D cycle where where if if necessary, we'll work with an expert like for chocolate bar, we'll work with an executive chef who can source single, you know, single varietal chocolate. Oh, gotcha. Or, you know, we'll work with another chef who does edibles or gummies and try to write the, find the right formulation. We take it then through uh, test batches, which we share internally with our employees. We ask employees to give us feedback on those. And then we go and we reformat and then we bring them into market once they're ready. And usually at that point, we've gotten enough feedback and there has been so much R&D behind it, trial and error, and also uh, a very clear understanding of what the product needs to be. It actually makes it a lot easier to market that product. And we've built a relationship with consumers that when we do launch a new product for those edible users and we say, hey, we loved your feedback, check it out. We've made dark chocolate bars with a crispy mint topper they know that they're getting something that they're going to like. Right, and they can trust. Sure. Yeah. Um, in terms of customer, we keep talking about the consumer. Is yeah. the dispensary a customer of yours? Do you look at it that way? Do you market to them in some way? Or how, how does that work in your mind? When you say, when you say, is the dispensary a customer, are you talking more about like a... Are you sell, do you sell only in your own dispensaries? Oh, no. We So we do, right. we do offer some B2B, which actually started last year. And... Again, a lot of where we made that decision was we got a lot of people who were asking for to purchase from us. And for a long time, we very much wanted the theory experience to be only within our walls. And that was a lot easier to do, you know, a few years ago when there were fewer dispensaries. And honestly, we were still understanding our supply chains. We were understanding our production outputs. We were understanding our portfolio. And so over time, we we just we developed a a B2B wholesale program that started to go into other markets. And I got my start early on in the uh, spirits category where there was a high B2B concentration, which we leveraged uh, some of that experience into how theory was going to scale. So you can find us in almost 60 different dispensaries in mass. Okay. So there's a lot to balance there. Um, Always. You have this huge product line, which is awesome. You have innovation coming on, which you constantly have to market. You have consumers to reach out to. You've got dispensaries to reach out to. Um, let me ask you one more balance question because we're out of, we're almost out of time, but I, and I have sure. a thousand things to ask, but one quick one, how are you balancing? Like, how do you see online as part of your, there's obviously brick and mortar strategy here, right? How does online fit into that or does it at all? Oh, it's mind? huge. Yeah, okay. it's huge. I mean, I think e-commerce, e-commerce was, e-commerce was expedited during COVID when people were spending less time in store, wanted a more abbreviated visits. Um, and I think over time, e-commerce will continue to grow. We work very closely with our partners at Dutchie who have been, you know, helpful in helping us kind of cater to a, a much better, uh, a much better opportunity for customers buying online. But what we actually saw this last 420 was a very large shift in people coming in store versus pre-ordering. And so e-commerce, I think over time will become more prolific, but there's always going to be some, some sparkle to brick and mortar. Right. So, so that's a, uh, is that going to be a challenge for you guys? Is that something that's on the table for you to keep building that? Or is it kind of, you think oh, it's yeah. going to be organic as you grow? So will that? Yeah, I think it's something that we're, we're always paying attention to. And it's almost, a, it's, a, it's the same kind of channel as the dispensary channel is, like you said earlier, oh, okay. um, where we yeah. want to make sure that depending on how you want to purchase cannabis, whatever meets you where you are, we want to be there. Um, we always encourage people to come visit us in the store because our consultants are world-class. We love having the conversations with people who are looking to find the right products for themselves. However, for those who are looking for a more expedited visit, whether it's through delivery or for getting a, you know, almost like a takeout order, we want to have that option too. Um, and so we're playing both hands as closely as we can to make sure we're always getting better and challenging ourselves to, to increase our abilities. Well, we have uh, been talking to Thomas Winstanley, uh, VP of Marketing of Theory Wellness. I uh, welcome you to check them out at theorywellness.org. Theory Wellness, one word, dot org. Um, I don't think you have time to talk to me. You have too much going on. Get off the call and get going. What are you doing? Do your job. I, I honestly, I appreciate it, David. No, this has been really, really fun. And it, honestly, there's you know, this is, this is one of the best jobs in the world for somebody who loves marketing. And so I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate and it's not, it doesn't feel like work when you're having as much fun as we do. That's uh, awesome. Glad we, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Interesting, interesting company. And we're going to have to keep our eye on theory, theory wellness. Um, we will be back uh, shortly with more of 
the business of cannabis. The business of cannabis is brought to you by Cash Tech Currency Products, North America's leading cash management provider for cannabis retailers. Cash recyclers, smart safes, software and services, Cash Tech has everything the cannabis retailer needs to track, manage, and secure the cash earned in the dispensary. Don't take chances with your cash. Call Cash Tech and solve the problem. Visit www.cashtechcurrency.com to learn more. Welcome back to the business of cannabis. After we have uh, spoken to Omar Mwellen and of uh, Alberta, Canada, journalist and filmmaker and documentarian, uh, Thomas Win Stanley, uh, if you're marketing at Theory Wellness, a tale of two industries. That's what I'm. What I was thinking as I kind of listened to them tell us about uh, what they've been doing in the cannabis space. Um, Omar's The Cautionary Tale, uh, The Irrational Exuberance of Cannabis. Um, he alludes to the, in his article, The Human Cost, <clears throat> the, um, the loss of careers, the loss of money, the loss of investment, the billions of dollars that are, that are now gone. Um, that it's, it's a very dynamic, dynamic industry, both creative and destructive. And that create the destructive process also gives rise to creativity and, and something new and something stronger. But there are damages along the way. People, people do get hurt. Um, the hope is eventually it emerges into something better. Too early to say how that emerges. And that emergence, that development, of course, is affected by so many things, not just the market. Most notably, when governments are so heavily involved, it can warp what happens. Um, so you have a, an Oklahoma experience with very little government involvement, uh, a California experience with a lot of government involvement, and maybe a New York, Illinois experience a little early in the day, but with maybe something in between. Maybe they've learned a bit more. Um, that mature versus new new markets uh, 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 conflict that's going on. Um, we talk about cannabis, but unless you say where, um, even, even more local than that, what part of California, it's, it's hard to, to pinpoint it. So there's the, the caution side. Uh, I don't think it was negative, it was just cautionary. Theory wellness, and, and Thomas, uh, spoke so eloquently but so passionately and so optimistically um, about going forward about the future uh, it was all it, it, none of the same issues that Omar raised were even in his mind um, it's full speed ahead uh, and if there's peril they're not thinking about it or worrying about it uh, will they get broadsided you know, are you just driving along and the next thing you know, you get T-boned and you're like, what happened? And you're in the ditch. Um, two seconds before, it doesn't sound like Fear Wellness is really looking around worried. It, in fact, quite the opposite. So you don't know if chickens are going to come home to roost. Uh, they've gone into maybe smaller markets, uh, maybe less mature markets. Uh, with less smaller populations, maybe less competition right now, still, all those things flow, uh, less opportunity, less opportunity for growth. And there is no necessarily, there's no rule that says just because you have a few dispensaries in a state, therefore competition isn't allowed to come in and take you out. It would be different if you had 50 or 60 dispensaries in a state. Then you have a significant presence. You have true brand recognition. Uh, so it's really early days there. They have a, a very large product line, uh, larger than it 
kind of, the, their, their brand is more expansive, impressively so, than maybe their brick and mortar presence. And that's a strategy. Uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that spreads. And that's where the bizarreness of the federal ban so distorts the market be, because you, you can be a producer in Maine. Uh, but as we've said on this show many times, I'm not sure California couldn't produce enough cannabis for the country. And then I'm not sure that Mexico couldn't produce enough cannabis for the country or Colombia. And I don't know if you need to grow cannabis in Oklahoma, but it's, it's kind of cool that they do uh, and, and, and produce cannabis in every state. Uh, but is that inefficient? Is that, is that artificially preventing that creativity, that process that Omar talked to? Um, while on a cautionary uh, uh, side, it, it does speak to the larger uh, process that's going on. Uh, where we're going to do this, we're going to transition from an illicit substance to a regulated substance, and we're going to create an industry out of that. And we're not quite sure how to do it. And in some places, we're just going to let it happen. In other places, we're going to be super worried about it and careful and regulate every moment of it. Uh, which one is right? which one will ultimately produce what we want, stability, uh, growth, jobs, investment, um, and, and also quality choice for the consumer, the, the widest possible choice for the consumer. Um, a tale of two industries, and, and maybe, there's another, maybe there's a third or fourth industry in cannabis. We'll have to think, I'll have to think that one through. Unfortunately, that is uh, all the time we have. Uh, I want to thank our guests, Omar Mwellen and uh, Thomas Winstanley, uh, Theory Wellness. I want to thank our sponsors, Cash Tech Currency Products. Go to www.cashtechcurrency.com uh, to find out about cash management and what to do with all that physical cash at your retail outlets, at your dispensaries and at your grows. Uh, sort it, count it, secure it get it into some financial institution. And until next week, uh, be well. Uh, I'm David Sky, and this is The Business of Canada. You're listening to Hayes Radio Network, Cannabis Lifestyle Radio.